Today, we are taking it all the way back to the Raiders of the Lost Ark, all things Indiana Jones, taking you all the way to the beginning, the comic book connections that helped form the vision for what George Lucas and Steven Spielberg would bring audiences worldwide in 1981, and the secret behind the Marvel adaptations, not just one, but two, the movie adaptation and the comic book series that uh, saw its share of problems making its way to our hands. So today, it's all about Raiders of the Lost Ark on Rob Observations. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, where we tackle all the pop culture, all the comic books, all the toys, all the video games, uh, everything related to comic books. Uh, this, this, this show started back in my youth in 1974-1975. Uh, episode 1 started a journey where I shared with you my walk alongside the world of comic books, how it affected me personally, how it affected uh, me, me as my, my career, where I was launched as an artist, later a writer, uh, then running a studio, a publisher. There is really no aspect of the comic book world that I haven't uh, seen from one perspective or the other, working with printers, distributors, comic stores, talent, and I try and mix it all up in this crazy grab bag each and every week that we have here on Rob Observations. Today, this thing is summer-themed because I love summer. I've always loved summer. Summer is my favorite. I don't understand people who like anything other than summer, so, you know, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged. I'm a summer homer. But this concerns a particular summer, a a a product that launched that took the world by storm. I know it took me by storm. This is our Raiders of the Lost Ark themed episode. Uh, the comic book origins behind Raiders of the Lost Ark. We're going to explore the comic book connections and origins of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the movie itself, and then the eventual uh, licensed book that launched first at Marvel Comics before, uh, like so many launches, uh, licenses launching all across different publishers over the over the vast decades. But I am going to ask you to journey with me to the weekend of June twelfth, nineteen eighty one, because that is the weekend that Raiders of the Lost Ark was uh, what, what premiered. And for me, I had seen the commercials. I saw that the character that the the, the actor that I knew as Han Solo was portraying this uh, clearly th- throwback to action serials. And again, so I am in 1981. I am 12 and and, and I've lived enough and seen enough uh, with all of the weekend film festivals that were on TV. Uh, a lot of the dedicated independent stations out here in Southern California, whether it was Channel 5, Channel 13, Channel 11, would uh, Channel 9, they would show all manner of different black and white films and, and different serials from the past that would, uh, you know, feature a lot of the stuff that was familiar to what I was seeing in regards to the promotions for Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, I, I understood like 19, like World War II, World War One kind of action, you know, explorer, uh, even even monster movies, especially with, with Nazis. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm just going to jump to the end. In one of my meetings with Steven Spielberg uh, th- that I was fortunate to have, not a name drop, but but when you hear it from the guy's own mouth, 
And I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast because I had uh, had two different movie properties that were, were optioned and uh, put me in a, a relationship with Mr. Spielberg for several years. And early on, he said to me, Rob, want to know why Nazis make the best villains? Because everybody wants to punch a Nazi. Nazi. Everybody wants to punch a Nazi. Told to me straight from Mr. Raise the Lost Ark, Mr. 1941, Mr. Schindler's List, Mr. Greatest Director of All Time, and he had covered this subject so many times. So I was like, that. I really, I laughed out loud. Everybody wants to punch a Nazi. They're the best guys. He also added that no one feels bad when you kill a Nazi. And I'm like, great. This is all great stuff. So I understood the language of the Saturday morning serial cliffhanger, the era, the World War II, the adventurer, hero, um, and, and, and... So I, I kind of knew that they were trying to sell me something that was newfangled twist on this, especially from the minds, you know, of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, which they gave you repeatedly that the creator of Star Wars, you know, the director of Jaws and Close Encounters against Spielberg had, had earned his place at the table as an elite uh, director. And, and everything that he was doing was was extremely anticipated. And then you throw George on it. I mean, it's literally like it's the, the Beatles and Elvis. We're making a we're making an album together. That's that's what George Lucas and Steven Spielberg together in 1981 said to genre fans. And boy, it 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 transferred. But that Saturday afternoon, our family's best friends, the Pledgers, were over at our house for a barbecue. It's June. The days are long. Uh, the burgers and the steaks and the hot dogs had been grilled. Everybody's stomachs were full. Um, my mom loved just hanging out and talking with uh, Mrs. Pledger. And and it was myself. Ken Pledger was my, you know, opposite. We had gone through school since kindergarten together. And my dad and Mr. Pledger, both of whom are, are, are long since passed, uh, Mr. Pledger and my dad mentioned like, hey, why don't we check out that Raiders of the Lost Ark film? And they turned to Kenneth and myself and said, would you guys want to go? This entire plan is being hatched about 5, 5.30 in the afternoon. Well, they tell the moms, the wives, hey, we're going to take the boys to see this serial. Because again, it had appeal to dads. It was it was my dad and his dad were in their 40s. They were totally digging on this. So we all piled in the car and we had the newspaper and we were looking at different times. And this is when I knew it was going to be interesting. We couldn't see it in Anaheim. It was sold out in Orange. We eventually drove about 25, 30 minutes away to a movie theater off Beach Boulevard in Garden Grove. And we unloaded and were able to get seats for like the 730 showing. And they were good seats. We got right center, center of the theater. Very memorable because I had never been to this theater uh, prior and I never went back. But I, I know the exact mall that it was in and what do you think a comic book store would go in this exact mall many, many years later? So I was like, oh, that's always going to be the theater that I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark in. Wow. Well, so the movie starts and we're blown away. We are absolutely, absolutely 100% blown away. Uh, watching just every single different cliffhanger, the, the quick pace. I have often said there are only a limited amount of what I believe is perfect films and Raiders of the Lost Ark is in fact a perfect film. You know it. I know it. There, It is flawless. It is a flawless movie. It moves at breakneck pace. All of the thrills and chills are earned. The laughter is there to decompress and kind of help you to breathe in, in, in the middle of all of the you know crazy tension. 
And then that huge finale that I certain I certainly did not see coming, where it almost for you know three minutes becomes akin to a, a horror film, and it, it's fantastic. And then at the end, wrapped it up. There's the arc. It's going into that deep, you know, giant cavernous warehouse, and the triumphant music plays, and you're like, "What did I just watch? I love Indiana Jones. This is amazing. What a great adventure." I would go on to see that movie multiple times that year, uh, along with the rest of you. It did not. Um, capture my imagination in the way that something like a Star Wars had a few years prior, but most certainly, or Empire Strikes Back, but most certainly Raiders of the Lost Ark was just a brilliant uh, film that introduced us all to this brilliant new hero. The whole time I couldn't believe that I did not mind whatsoever that Harrison Ford was also Indiana Jones while being Han Solo. I just completely separated it. Now, many of you may already know, I I don't believe this is really a a big secret anymore, but I've been really surprised at the things that we've talked about on this show that end up being revelations to people when I'm like, oh, I thought, I thought more people knew this, but, uh, there was a huge show on around this same time that had launched called Magnum PI starring, starring Tom Selleck. And it launched, you know, Tom Selleck and the show became the number one show on television for a period of time. Magnum PI was so popular about a private eye, you know, on the Hawaiian islands. And, uh, Tom Selleck was a guy's guy. Guys wanted to be him. Women wanted to be with him. He was super handsome, super brawny. Um, you know, just great, you know, off the cuff one-liners, great, uh, demeanor, funny, but, but, but complete action, action star, big, imposing, so it came out shortly thereafter in all of these magazines that I've referenced before, the most popular of all of them being Starlog. Starlog was the dedicated genre magazine. I have uh, mentioned it many times in speaking of uh, this era, whether it was Star Wars, the anticipation for Empire Strikes Back, Battlestar Galactica. They totally covered Raiders of the Lost Ark for all the reasons that I've expressed to you, given that it was a a byproduct of the two biggest kind of entertainment minds and certainly the two biggest entertainment minds in, in, in sci-fi. And, and so, so the thing is that the, uh, the thing is that, that there, these stories started breaking shortly after about the fact that Tom Selleck had been originally chosen to be Harrison Ford, but CBS would not let him out of his commitment to, to, to be Magnum PI. So he absolutely had to Turned down the role, declined. He already had a great a great gig, a gig that actually would go on to really service him in every possible way. But he, uh, on passing on it, they went to their default, which was Harrison. And uh, and and the thing is, um, the thing with Harrison Ford is they absolutely were worried, um, you know, that that that, that the Han Solo, uh, the Han Solo aspect of all of it would possibly get in the way. Well, I can tell you right now, like I said, it did not. I totally was like, Harrison Ford is so great. I can't believe I buy him as Han Solo and I buy him as Indiana Jones completely separately. And obviously for Harrison Ford, he he should have just kind of looked at all of us through the screen and said, you ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to enjoy me as the president of the United States. You're going to in, enjoy me as Deckard in Blade Runner. You're going to enjoy me in all manner of different roles because I'm Harrison Ford. And that's what I do. But at the time, this is the birth of the Harrison Ford as, you know, global superstar, humongous, amazing, outrageous, 
you know, mega box office sensation. And, and, and it was fantastic. Well, as something of this nature grew and exploded onto the culture, what always happens is the magazines, they do, they want more stories. They want more, uh, they, 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 they want to share with you, you know, the secrets behind the success because they know people like myself and you and all of the genre kids were wanting to eat up every aspect of the creation of something like Indiana Jones. So it was, it was, uh, you know, no time whatsoever that these splashy, brilliant paintings by Jim Steranko, no less, a name I'm going to expand on in just a second here, were being uh, shared in all the magazines, all the sci-fi, all the fantasy, all the, the, the action magazines. And I could not believe the, the, the beauty and the depth of these incredible magazines. I mean, of these incredible illustrations done by a huge comic book superstar and they were fully painted. I mean, and, and now, now these were the first in, 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 in regards to the lore of everything. This was the first in regards to like the lore of the image and the style that they were looking for, uh, as they were building this world. And here's how the story goes. This is straight from one of the magazines. Okay. Um, in, in, in their notes to Jim Steranko, George Lucas had requested four paintings, four along the lines, uh, of the, of the descriptions by Jane Bay. I don't know who Jane Bay is. I'm just reading this. Someone obviously had given some descriptions and George Lucas wanted these to be, uh, to be illustrated along those descriptions. Now, Jim Strankel, I will tell you later says like he didn't write this from anything other than someone telling him like, these are the images we want. So that's what this is referring to. Uh, each of these paintings is then described on this uh, uh, on, on this page in Starlog. And because you can't look at the paintings, and I'm not ready to talk about them yet, I'm just going to go to this, where it says, uh, Painting our hero on a horse leaping onto a Nazi truck with canvas cover on the back of the truck, circa 1936, right before the war. He says, uh, In fact, George showed me a picture while I was helping him hang these giant enlargements of photos around Industrial Light and Magic, which was George Lucas's company. And one of them is a guy jumping from a horse onto a truck. He said that this image was the heart of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I prefer the tension of the moment just before the explosion, Steranko wrote in his June 30th, 1979 letter to George Lucas. I flew to the West Coast. I met with Stephen and discussed his approach and his inspirations, Jim Steranko says. He was busy busy editing his 1941 film. 1941 was a comedy that Steven Spielberg had just shot in between Close Encounters and this at a Burbank facility. But we chatted for a while. Then he suggested, let's have dinner and let's continue this conversation. This is Spielberg suggesting to comic book legendary illustrator artist Jim Steranko. Um, we piled into his car to drive to a nearby restaurant. And he shared his indie inspirations, and they became immediately apparent. The back seat uh, was stacked with film cans of Spy Smasher and Zorro's Fighting Legion, the serial reference George had mentioned during our first phone call. Um, Raiders was not, he explained, a suspense film. This is Spielberg. The characters were larger than life. The locations exotic, at times bordering on the fantastic, and the set pieces were there to be evocative of that period. Action was the keynote, and the plot was to feature enough cliffhangers to stock a serial, which accounted for the homework in Stephen's car, referring to those 
film canisters of Spy Smasher and Zorro's Fighting Legion. Stranko says, I never saw a script. All of the key scenes I painted were described in the conversations that I had with these guys. So I'm going to tell you now to a more, take you to a more detailed, following that up with a more detailed um, recollection of uh, Jim, Jim Steranko and, uh, and, and how he recounts this. So Steranko was absolutely, I'll go back further. Jim Steranko shook the comic book world with two huge memorable runs on uh, both of which had a Kirby kind of, um, not, if, if not an immediate follow-up, it was invoked in, it invoked the spirit of Jack Kirby on Nick Fury's shield and on Captain America, both runs, uh, brief runs, six, eight issues, maybe tops, uh, but super memorable because Jim Steranko came in with a design sense that was the first, like one of the first big giant punch in your face. This isn't a normal, you know, six, seven, four, five, two panel grid system. He did the big figures holding the panels. He did the, uh, the giant action shots outside that broke the borders. He did design elements. He incorporated logos. The Hydra logo would have panels in it on the page. He did amazing detailed spreads. The guy could draw like a mofo. Jim Stranko has such an appealing style, you know, uh, kind of Wally Wood meets Jack Kirby, uh, and, 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 and the, the style that he laid down, the work that he shared would go on to inspire all manner of other guys that I've spoken to you on this show many times. Howard Chaikin, Walt Simonson, Frank Miller, Steranko, and especially with that great name, uh, was just uh, Jim Steranko just took comic, book, comic books by storm when he pivoted over to Cap. Those Captain America issues are amazing and they evoke the exact same design elements. Um, he really was like a splat, the first of the splashy performers. As well as Neil Adams illustrated a figure, Jim Steranko laid out a page. And he took every page as a, as a, as a, as a challenge. He would incorporate photo elements uh, into the designs. I mean, I just, I, I cannot tell you how much you should seek these amazing pieces of workout. He would then go on and do some independent work, some de de detective comics. Uh, but the bottom line is he had bigger aspirations. He knew the scope of his talent. He got into publishing. He had a magazine that he was publishing like, a, uh, you know, very much like a, uh, a, a, a star log. And, and uh, that really kind of took up the majority of his time. But he was in demand because he wanted to be on the publishing side of things. And uh, so, so Jim Steranko, having made this huge impact in comic books and, and now kind of limiting what he's doing, but he is doing production paintings and he's, he's in the know. He's contacted by people, you know, in, in the movie industry. I mean, obviously high up to be sought out by both Lucas and Spielberg post Jaws, Close Encounters and Star Wars. They ask him, help us create this Indiana Jones serial hero. Um, Harrison Ford was not, again, not in, in involved at this time. And, and I'm not sure where they were in terms of trying to cast Tom Selleck if he was in the mix. The, the, these, the, 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 the shocking thing about these paintings is they really do look like what Harrison Ford eventually, you know, looked like. I mean, even facially. But uh, Steranko made these amazing production paintings. And, uh, and uh, the only request specifically was that they wanted the character to wear a hat, a fedora, the likes of which Charlton Heston wore in his famous film, Secret of the Incas. Now, when you look at Charlton Heston in Secret of the Incas, you can see very clearly where 
they look exactly the same. Charlton Heston also has a leather jacket. So side by side, the Charlton Heston character in Secret of the Incas looks very much like Harrison Ford in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, but they 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 uh, they asked him to incorporate that um, hat, that fedora, and then even though Charlton Heston has a leather jacket in Secret of the Incas, George Lucas said, "I wear a bomber jacket." And please incorporate that into this, even though the jacket that is, again, on Indy and in these paintings by Steranko is incredibly reminiscent of the entirety of Charlton Heston's wardrobe, given his fedora and his jacket in Secret of the Incas. Um, Steranko added the garrison belt, and it is unknown if Steranko put the whip, the whip in Indiana Jones' hands. Um, Spielberg, completely blown away by these paintings. Again, uh, asked Jim to dinner. Here's where we get some of the details that we didn't get in what I previously shared with you. They chatted, and Spielberg wanted more paintings from Steranko along the lines that these four key paintings that he described. You know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to describe these paintings now and pivot back to them in a second. So each of the paintings is like a giant... Uh, how do you say this? Each of these paintings uh, is is like a a scene from the film that the, there is one of uh, Indy with his gun drawn facing in the foreground, a giant Cobra that, and, and there are several Cobras to the right of Indiana Jones. He's clearly there. There are stone steps behind him as he has come into some uh, labyrinth or maybe deep vault, uh, ancient tomb. There's spider webs, there's vines uh, could be a jungle setting, but he looks exactly like, Harrison Ford. He's got the fedora. He's got the open leather jacket. He's got the button shirt, the, the, the shirt that's buttoned down to below his chest. He's got the um, garrison belt, the strap, leather strap for the bag across. Um, he's got his khaki pants and he has got this gun drawn as in the, you know, as he's facing this giant cobra in the foreground. And then we see, you know, he basically looks to be surrounded by these cobras in the this vault. The second painting is exactly almost like they froze a frame from when uh, Indy is fighting the Nazi pilot as he attempts to escape the, the where, where the Nazi pilot eventually gets chopped up by the ro the rotary blades, the rotor blades of, of, of the jet. And he is just smacking him. It's a full-on extension arm. He's swinging full-on, uh, just like cracking this Nazi pilot back who is, you know, reeling from the shot. And they are below the uh, wing of the plane and you see the rotor blades, you see the wheels and it, it does appear that the plane is in motion. I mean, these paintings, you cannot underestimate how brilliant they are. The, my favorite of all the paintings, moving to painting number three, is a uh, very much a uh, widescreen shot. Indiana Jones is from the thighs up, uh, really the, 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 the object in the most foreground again the leather jacket the whip in his hand he's in a very kind of actiony kind of anticipating uh you know some trouble pose his arms are kind of slightly you know flayed out and and he's chewing on what looks like a a, a cigar or a cigarette but but he's uh got his fedora the shadow of the floor is cast across his face got a very you know strong jawline looks so much like Harrison Ford 
The jacket is beautifully rendered. I mean, Starenko went in there with all the different shines and the folds. He's got his uh, garrison belt, the khakis, and behind him is a uh, is is a jeep. And there's all uh, and tanks are rumbling up the sand dunes. This is all in the sand dunes. I forgot to say this is all out in the middle of the desert in the sand dunes. And there are different. Um, uh, it looks like uh, Middle Eastern, like like Lawrence of Arabia guys riding on camels. And then a couple of them are unloading a jeep. It looks like they've seized a jeep and are taking some crates off the jeep. But way in the background are there some there are some tanks rumbling across the sand tundra. It is an amazing. I mean, it is just the most beautiful painting finally is Indy jumping towards the truck exactly the scene that you see there's a tilted angle the truck is coming up from the bottom right through the left Indy is on the horse on the far on on the far uh left lunging right about to jump into the truck there's uh like smoke and like you can see like some wreckage down below, like Indy's already caused some commotion and, 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 and some carnage along the way. And uh, again, this is again, below them is the, the sand dune. So this is again, right after that sequence where Indy tracks down and jumps on onto the, uh, the, you know, Nazi, the, the Nazi, you know, caravan of trucks. So these four paintings are like snapshots from the movie. I can't, I, I, I'm sure like, they became legendary and like, we need these. Everyone who does movies, we want you to do something like this. I mean, because why wouldn't you? Um, it's it's really impressive. These are so staggeringly, beautifully illustrated. They have great drawing, great painting technique. And apparently, you know, what happened along the way and why I pivoted back to the paintings is you, you need to know how great these illustrations are before I share with you the extent with which you hear that Spielberg then says, "How m I'd like more paintings from you. And uh, Jim's like, well, what are you looking for? And this is, again, Jim Starango recounting his meeting with Steven Spielberg. Spielberg says, how long did it take for you to do these four paintings? Jim said, I did the four paintings in four days. And Spielberg said, well, I'd like some more. Jim said, how many more? He goes, I would like 30 more. Jim, Jim Starango says to Steven Spielberg, well, how soon do you want those 30 paintings? And Spielberg says, I'd like them in 30 days. So he's looking, you did four and four. Let's keep that going. Jim said, that would take me straight through Christmas. And uh, he says to Stephen, you know, four in four days is one thing, but 30 and 30 is something entirely different. And uh, Spielberg said, well, you could take till New Year's. You could, you could even take till New Year's. So he's adding on a week. And Jim said, thanks, but no thanks. He uh, opted out and, and, and left behind these four iconic paintings. And, uh, you know, that was his legacy. And if you see the movie, you'll see just how impactful these matte paintings, these paintings are to the Raiders comic book uh, uh, styled, you know, action and cinematic brilliance that we received in the same way that Ralph McQuarrie and all of the amazing art that we saw that defined Star Wars on the board before it was filmed. I mean, those McQuarrie uh, illustrations, there were so many of them, they filled books. Again, you've got four, four Jim Steranko drawings, paintings that are as good as anything McQuarrie did. And of course, Stephen wanted more. So here's an interesting 
uh, aspect in a thread on this, uh, you know, one of the another uh, one of the other um, one of the other storyboard guys, a gentleman named Paul Power, who I've known for thirty years. He has uh, made his career doing storyboards for l literally all manner of production, TV and film across, you know, the spectrum. He he, he is a He's a guy who some of my friends have gone to work with. I mean, Paul Power has booked job after job after job. He said uh, Paul Power uh, makes a mention like Steranko could have named whatever price he wanted to do those production paintings. I wish that I would have known him during that gig. I would have called him up and said, Jimmy, do this and get rich quick. Um, and he, he's, he's laughing. But but I, I do believe that the anticipation uh, for, for more... You know, we can sit in a what-if world. I'm not proposing this. This is Paul Power, a guy who does this for the for for a living, and he realizes once you've got the director whining and dining you, begging you for more. Yes, who knows the lengths that Jim Steranko could have gone? But Jim, I think felt like I gave you these four. Um, maybe maybe the rest aren't going to be of the same quality, especially feeling that pressure. He opted out. Um, other guys uh, weighed in. And, and said that people such as uh, Dave Stevens, who went on to do The Rocketeer, did some storyboard work following this on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was really, it, it's really great to see how all the guys, uh, you know, uh, uh, contributed, you know, to other names that they knew in the comic book world. Doug Wildly, uh, who is famous for Johnny Quest, which I'm sure you've heard of. Johnny Quest was a big deal in the 60s and the 70s. And they're still trying to make a live action uh, version of that. Johnny, Johnny Quest has many of the same applications, kind of serial action that, that Raiders does. It just has a little bit of a, more of a sci-fi twist. Doug Wildly apparently was called in to work on the film. And the story goes, as recounted here, that uh, they, because George Lucas and Spielberg were both, both huge Johnny Quest fans, they thought this would be great. Doug Wildly could contribute storyboards and art for us. But Doug lit up a cigarette and started smoking between them. And they said, no, 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 you can't smoke in here. It's no smoking allowed on this job. And he um, apparently got angry and stormed out. But before he did, he did recommend Dave Stevens of Rocketeer fame. Now, Dave Stevens did actually do uh, plenty of work on Star Wars. Dave actually did finishes on the Star Wars adaptation that Marvel did in the last issues five and six. He helped out with uh, Rick Hoberg and Howard Chaikin when the deadlines got tight. And then immediately after, because I just was like, wow, who's this Dave Stevens guy? Because there was a daily Star Wars newspaper strip that started uh, about a year after Star Wars. They sold the syndicated rights and the LA Times was one of the papers. I'm sure the New York Times, I'm sure many of you got it as well. A, a, a artist who had done Tarzan for years and years, Russ Manning, got the job and started doing, uh, there was a daily serial that told you one story and then the Sunday serial told you a different because Sunday was in color. The reason I'm telling you about Star Wars, again, because Star Wars and indie, it all crosses over because it's all got the George Lucas in the middle of it. Uh, Russ Manning, towards the end of his second story arc, which included uh, glimpses of Boba Fett, uh, the art and, 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 and especially X-Wing pilots and, and a little more complicated subject matter than they had been drawing up until that point, it started looking completely different in the rendering and Dave Stevens name was on the strip. And I'm like, who's this guy, Dave Stevens, this guy can draw like, a, like, like he's amazing. So Dave Stevens was definitely on everyone's radar. Dave Stevens has passed away um, many years back, but the Rocketeer was only one of his, but it is the chief kind of uh, achievement of his career. Another, you know, amazing 
serialized action adventure story in the vein of Indiana Jones. So Dave Stevens has a comic book, uh, you know, tether connection to to Raiders prior to, you know, the Raiders comic book coming out. All this comic book talent, Jim Stranko, Dave Stevens, Doug Wildly were all behind the scenes helping to form this amazing serial that we got. But when are we getting a Raiders of the Lost Ark comic book, right? Because right after the movie, right after the movie, uh, I went and saw at the newsstand that there was a beautifully painted Raiders of the Lost Ark Marvel super special adaptation. And I had to have it. I just, I absolutely had to have it. It had this beautiful Howard Chicken, who I have spoken of many times here. Howard Chicken, who should, the last time you heard me talk about him was how he should already be in the Hall of Fame. He did the Star Wars adaptation. He did American Flag. He did Dominic Fortune. He's he's just ridiculously wildly accomplished. And uh, he did a dedicated, I mean, complete, no line art, just a painting for the Marvel Comics Super Special that was the comic book adaptation of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it jumped off the page like, wow. I mean, this guy obviously, again, knew something about working with Lucasfilm because he did the first six Star Wars well, a, a comic book adaptation, the first six Star Wars comic book adaptations. Well, lo and behold, I crack the book and I see that it is drawn by none other than legendary John Buscema, who uh, you've heard me mention many times. He's on my Mount Rushmore. It's Jack Kirby. It's Steve Ditko. It's John Buscema. It's Neil Adams. I did an entire dedicated podcast to my Mount Rushmore of comic book artists and John is on it. John did, along with Klaus Janssen finishing, and you've heard me say him, he's one of the best finishers, inkers, uh, a complete artist in his own right. They did the adaptation, but as I flipped through it, I'm going to be honest. I was a little underwhelmed, especially coming to this after seeing the movie. It seemed like John did a very basic storyboard application. It, it, it was very much not in the vein of how he had illustrated the greatest issues of Fantastic Four, of Avengers, of Conan, uh, that I had seen him do in the past. It was, I would say, uh, a very restrained John Buscema. And for the life of me, I can't tell you why I wasn't there, but this was also in a period of his life where John was very famous for doing just rough breakdowns and giving them a, to a finisher who John's rough breakdowns had everything you ever possibly needed in terms of figure information, uh, the, the weight of the figure, the shadows, the certainly the action, the storytelling. He is one of, if need, again, n- not the best that ever did it. That's why he's on my Mount Rushmore. His accomplishments are staggering. Uh, behind Kirby, I, I think he's the most prolific comic artist that ever was. And his drawing skills were on par with Neil. Neil just knew how to make a flashier product and Neil had a style of rendering that he would put upon his work. Again, Neil Adams even said, I mean, come on, John Buscema, he's one of the greats. Like, when you anything you got from John Buscema, you knew all you had to do was add to it because he had already given you so much of the basic information to make everything work. Well, this Raiders of the Lost Ark in, uh, uh, adaptation, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't. It was low on the wow factor, especially in comparison to the wow factor of the film. I'm going to come back to this. It was a nice adaptation. Did I buy it? I did. That cover alone was going to get that that money, and I wanted to have this adaptation. Marvel then, as they were, you know, uh, prone to do, they split it up into multiple different issues. And, and made it a three-issue miniseries adapted monthly uh, following this magazine adaptation. But here's where things get interesting. Because Marvel eventually, absolutely, wanted to make a comic book of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark franchise. Because, come on, they had had, they had, had success with this. Uh, and, and lo and behold, 
within one year in 1982, I am holding right here next to me, John Byrne of X-Men, of Fantastic Four, of Avengers, of the most, you know, celebrated kind of comic book runs in my history. He is my favorite comic book artist of all time. Uh, except, well, then how can he not be on the Mount Rushmore? Because it, 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 the Mount Rushmore, you got to have something more. This defi- He is one of the greatest of my, you know, had the, one of the greatest eight-year careers. And again, of course he did the Indiana Jones. And I'm going to tell you how he got there and why he's so important that this got ad- ad- adapted in the first place. But John is right there. If there was five heads, John would be my fifth head. I just can't put him ahead of Jack Kirby, Neil Adams, John Buscema, and Steve Ditko. Their accomplishments are so, wow. But here's the deal. Uh, Marvel wanted to do a Raiders of the Lost Ark comic book. So they contacted they contacted Lucasfilm. Well, Lucasfilm didn't want to do it. They said, we didn't like, they told Jim Shooter, we didn't like the adaptation you did for us. We weren't impressed. To which Jim Shooter said, we gave you our very best artist. And they said, doesn't, doesn't matter. We, 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 we weren't impressed. We're, we're not certain about going forward on you. So Shooter, according to both Jim Shooter and John Byrne, so where I've got all these recollections, and, uh, and, and, and again, just, you know, pulled my, pulled all my research and my interviews. J- Jim Shooter is quoted as saying that he himself did not want to do an Indiana Jones book, but the editor, Jim Salakrup, uh, who, who would go on to be, for, for instance, the editor of Spider-Man while Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, uh, did their amazing run. Jim is a hugely accomplished guy and he was the X-Men editor along with John Byrne when John Byrne was doing his formative X-Men work. So... Jim Shooter responding to now Lucasfilm saying, no, we don't want to do a comic book with you. We weren't happy with the, uh, with, with the, the magazine adaptation that you did. Well, he goes to, uh, to Lucasfilm and says, we'll give you our most popular penciler that we have. And John Byrne had done a one sheet, uh, an, an example of, of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Jim Salakrup and Jim Shooter showed it to Lucasfilm and said, this guy, he's, he's, you know, does Fantastic Four, he does X-Men. Look, John's work has this amazing appeal. And and it is a little more candy-coated, a little more uh, uh, fun to look at, maybe, than, than John Buscema, who, did, despite being so fundamentally sound, maybe didn't have all the bells and whistles, especially at that age. He's probably 30 years older than John Byrne at this point. So no wonder maybe there wasn't essentially a pop and given what John says here that may also play a factor into why the um the Raiders of the Lost Ark adaptation that John Buscema did seemed so restrained and maybe um a little uh just 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 a little a little quiet but John says that uh after agreeing because they agreed okay we'll do this we, we like John Byrne we'll give this a shot so they've made their argument Lucasfilm says they're going to do it um so so uh John Byrne, and now I'm going to quote, here's the second hurdle, he said it, which is why, because John Byrne famously launches the Indiana Jones comic in 1982. He does two issues and he's gone. He says, here's the second hurdle. First hurdle was that, you know, they didn't want to do it in the first place. Um, but he loved Raiders of the Lost Ark. He, 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 John was, when he was asked, would you do it? He, he jumped at the chance because he loved the film so much. The second hurdle, he says, he said, uh, was that, because there's three hurdles. Jim Shooter said, hey, I don't want this to be 
a cliffhanger, an issue, episode book. I want it, you know, self-contained issue, self-contained issue. John Byrne says Jim Shooter was in his uh, everything has to be resolved in one issue mode. Uh, and he said to Jim Shooter, so uh, I can do cliffhangers, but they have to be resolved that issue. Come on. So Shooter then relented and said, all right, I'll let you do like two part stories. And John Byrne said, great. But this was just the beginning of the trouble because the third hurdle is the liaison at Lucasfilm. John Byrne describes a woman who clearly understood, this is his words, who understood nothing about how comics were produced and who had no inclination to learn. It went like this. I, John Byrne, wrote the plot. I submitted it to Lucasfilm for approval. They approved it. Based on that approval, I drew the pictures. I then submitted for approval the drawn version of my story. Then I wrote the screen, the, the, the script, the dialogue. And I sent that in. So story approved. He draws the story. Then he puts the final script on top, goes to the scripter function. Then they ask that they turn it in. And she said, Hey, I have a bunch of changes I need to make to the story. Marvel then responds per John. No, 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 no. You can't do that. That was two steps back. Two steps back is when you were supposed to step in and do, do that. Um, she said, no, no, no. I need changes to the plot. He said, uh, the first issue was nearly complete and she decided this is the Lucasfilm license or that she liked the plot that he had submitted months earlier for what would be eventually the third issue of the book. He said, uh, they successfully after a period of time, talked her out of this explaining production deadlines, you know, solicitation. He said, John Burns says after two issues with this ins insanity, I gave up the ghost. Uh, there was no way to work if each step could be overturned by someone who did not understand the process of doing comic books. Uh, this did not change after I left. I was later told by Marvel that when they did the adaptation of the second movie, as the book was set to go to the printers, Lucasfilm called up and said, we'd like a different penciler for this job. So this is, from my experience, Rob Liefeld in publishing, as I, as I led with today, I have done licensed products. I have done Battlestar Galactica. I was asked by J.J. Abrams himself. That's a story I haven't gotten to yet, but I'll, I'll allude to some of it here. J.J. Abrams called me in 2003. He was a fan of my work specifically. I stepped out of the Chinese restaurant to take it. Um, he wanted me to do a comic book adaptation of Alias. I eventually got Andy Park, who you all know as the head of Marvel, you know, uh, uh, visual development and, and who has done so many key, I mean, just Andy Park is like Marvel comic book art of the films. And so much of what's in the MCU is you see and enjoy because he gave it to you and he has a comic book background because I gave Andy Park his first work in comics. Yes, I gave Andy Park his first work in comics. This, there's also a dedicated episode of this about all the guys in Extreme Studios and how they all went on to great success in television, animation, and film. And it was just a pleasure along the way to have interacted with each and every one of them. But Andy Park painted the Alias adaptation. There is a reason you did not see that. The situation that John is describing here is akin to what we ran into on the Alias adaptation. But I can go even one... <laughs> I can go... Uh, one step further and tell you that I was hired in 1996 because I was doing a deal with Tom Cruise. You've mentioned, you've heard me mention several times that I was uh, developing a movie. It was called the Mark with Tom Cruise. There's a dedicated 
uh, podcast episode on that. It was a really fun time, really fun adventure. And, and, and Paramount, per Tom Cruise request, asked for me to be involved in the Mission Impossible comic book adapt- adaptation. Uh, the exact same situation that John Byrne is describing here happened there. I then handed it completely off to Marvel because I can't be changing things that are agreed upon time and again. And this isn't Tom. This is license licensing people in Mission Impossible. True story. There is a version of Mission Impossible that got pulped. Very few people know about it, but there were pages in it that Tom, when he saw it, they actually printed the book. It got as so far as to print. This book was in print. I have copies. I have five copies. I gave one to one member of my family. I have kept the other four. They were not allowed to to leave the printer. They got pulped. Okay. They uh, were not allowed. Pulp means destroyed. The changes were then made on two pages, which were then slotted into the film and they reprinted the entire Mission Impossible adaptation that shipped to uh, stores that you got. I did the cover on that. The cover was actually the easiest part of doing that job. What John Byrne is describing here is insane, but it is par for the course with these licensing companies who it, it kind of shows you how they view the comic book process and the comic book talent were just not that important to them. And it's a shame they don't view us in any way, shape or form in the same way that they view the director of a film, even though so much of what we do is like directing films to the actual comic book that John Byrne did. These two issues that John did, the second one, he was already kind of backing off. He only did breakdowns, and Terry Austin brilliantly finished it. Both issues are inked by his amazing collaborator on X-Men. I mean, this is uh, th- th- this is the, the most absolutely insane like occurrence that the Uncanny X-Men team reunites for only two issues of Indiana Jones, but they did. Indiana Jones 1 and 2, the further adventures of Indiana Jones, as published by Marvel Comics, is something that you need to get your hands on as fast as you possibly can. Uh, they are in omnibuses or or trade paperback reprints that, that I think Dark Horse issued maybe a decade back. Don't quote me on that, but you can always go on eBay and get the individual issues. John Byrne, this first issue, which is full pencils, John Byrne story, art, and inked by Terry Austin is everything that you would absolutely hope an Indiana Jones comic would be. It is, I am flipping the pages, these beautiful newsprint pages right now. It is, uh, it evoked, it evokes some of the great moments from his X-Men series. There's secret temples, um, priests, rituals. There's, uh, you know, uh, uh, all manner of people trying to get in Indy's way and thwart him. There's there's international gangs. Um, the second issue again, which is breakdowns by John, which is just like getting a breakdown from John Buscema at that time. John Byrne's breakdowns were very, uh, 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 they were so stylized and so noticeable that even his breakdowns, because he had done issues of the X-Men and Marvel team-up and Fantasy Four in breakdown mode as well, because um, sometimes he was doing two to three books a month. But both Indiana Jones 1 and 2, as I flip through them, they are... Gorgeous. The second issue uh, looks amazing. Even even though, again, I, I'm telling you that it's 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 breakdowns because John also wants you to know very much that they're breakdowns. He 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 uh, breakdowns slash layouts. Um, but these one two issues give you forty great amazing pages 
uh, of Indiana Jones that are maybe more in the spirit of the comic book than anything I'd ever seen before. Howard Shaken himself and Terry Austin reunite and do some issues of Indiana Jones later in the Marvel run. Carrie Gamble, an amazing penciler in his own right, who kind of lives in a world of partly John Byrne and John Buscema are his two biggest influences, gives you some really great stuff. The the Marvel Indiana Jones comic books are high, high, highly recommended, but I just figured that we had to do an episode given that this is summer. Raiders of the Lost Ark was such a great, amazing summer serial blockbuster that blew everybody away. It had comic book connections going all the way back to Jim Steranko, which we've covered. Who knows what those 30 paintings would have looked like, right? But the four we got are amazing. And you know you're Googling them right now or you're about to or you're going to when this is over. And you're going to look at them and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, these are amazing. And if you didn't know that they existed, you're welcome. Uh, Jim Steranko just knocked it out of the park with these. Then Doug Wildly, then Dev St- Dave Stevens. There is a reason Indiana Jones uh, and so many of the Lucasfilm and Steel- Steven Spielberg productions of the era were so great because they attracted top talents like Jim Steranko, like Ralph McQuarrie. And, uh, and so then again, getting to the Indiana Jones comic book and the fact that Lucasfilm informed Jim Shooter, we don't even want to do another adaptation with you. We didn't like the dedicated one. And then the finickiness that we've just covered with John Byrne, who look, John Byrne at this time is the biggest name in comics. So believe you me, getting notes and being told to redraw entire issues and, and after the thing is done and, and see, here's how the licensor thought, well, of course they needed to draw the whole thing out for me to then give it corrections. No, that's not the way the pipeline in comic books work. And John and Lucasfilm had to find out the hard way. The two issues that we got were worth it. Based based on my reaction and now flipping through them again, the two issues of The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones by John Byrne and Terry Austin that we got are absolutely worth it. I think they are among the best of all of the uh, movie adaptations. The guy who did Temple of Doom, by the way, is Butch Geis. He later became Jackson Geis. He's fantastic. He's he's amazing. He he does tremendous work, and 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 those are also worth ch- checking out. But that's a different podcast completely. So there you have it. You have the comic book connections, the comic book DNA that was in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, and, and and contributed to what was one of the, if not the best, cinematic experiences of all space and time. And before we wrap this entire Raiders of the Lost Ark comic book adaptation, comic book connection episode up, putting a final, final bow on it, I should tell you that, again, the irony of the entire Marvel-Lucasfilm kind of dynamic during this time and the reason that it's so funny that Lucasfilm was disappointed on the the record, disappointed in, in the comic book adaptation that Marvel did is that, uh, they solicited Marvel for the adaptation. You, you, this, this is a great kind of add-on. Lucasfilm had reached out because of the success, right? With with the Star Wars comic book that, that was still running at this time. I mean, th- th- this, is, this is a relationship that they have that's, that's going into its fifth, sixth year. Lucasfilms, uh, you know, approached Marvel about doing an adaptation of their film. They sent in the script because they're like, here, read this. You, you'll you'll want to you know make this. Jim Shooter, personal opinion at the time, was that Marvel was doing way too many movie adaptations. Now, they had done like Close Encounters. Uh, they, 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 they literally were doing a, a whole bunch. I mean, they did Xanadu, okay? I think <laughs> and I think that was a total uh, flop for them. Marvel had done Xanadu. So, so Shooter was, I think, a little hesitant because the movie adaptations weren't exactly 
uh, going going their way. And he told, you know, the publishing that he could not go forward. He didn't feel like this was the right project for them and that they were doing way too many movie adaptations and that they weren't selling for Marvel. So Lucasfilm, so intent on getting Shooter to give the green light to do this movie adaptation in the first place, they show Jim Shooter the first 25 minutes of the movie. And as we know, I mean, that first 25 minutes is fantastic. Uh, I mean, the first 10 minutes is is fantastic. After Jim Shooter watched this v- special viewing that Lucasfilm set up for him, he picked them up and said he changed his mind, that the script did not in any way do the film justice. He was blown away. He approved it. And the Marvel Super Special at number 18 adaptation with Raiders of the Lost Ark was on the way. In Jim's defense, again, he assigned Walt Simonson, one of his biggest talents, to write it, John Buscema to draw it, and Klaus Janssen to finish it. And as I've said, again, looking here at the pages, uh, the book is very, very distant. Everything is shot from a distance. Even the close-ups don't feel like committed close-ups. Again, I think John Buscema took it as a story, kind of a storyboard approach to it. Just did polish storyboards, which for anyone else is great. Uh, but, but when, when, when Marvel had hit it out of the park with something like a Star Wars, uh, it, I mean, that's what everyone's going to judge us again. Cause that Howard Chaykin Star Wars adaptation and the Empire Strikes Back that they had just done the, the with Al Williamson, he, he, he came in and did one of the greatest comic book adaptations of all time. So, so Marvel does this shooter puts his top talent and by top talent, he tells Lucasfilm, this is our top paid guy. Okay. And uh, John Byrne recalls this very clearly because he said that at the time, the only guy that was getting paid as much as John Byrne, according to his boss, editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, was John Buscema. So whatever reason, uh, Lucasfilm being irked at the adaptation and expressing that they didn't like it, uh, did not want to do a further adaptation with them. So now when Jim Salakrup goes to Jim Shooter and says, hey, I want to do this, again, the shoe is on the other foot and uh, Jim Shooter is now in the in the, in the position of trying to woo Lucasfilm. And again, John Byrne was the big kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the big shiny object that he tried to woo them with the, 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 the item that he pointed to and said, this is our most popular guy. Come on, come on. He's the most popular guy in comics and he will draw your comics. So anyway, you know, uh, they, you know, went on and did it. But again, Jim, Jim, John Byrne had a terrible experience as I outlined to you earlier on this podcast. And, you know, bottom line, the Indiana Jones uh, license went a, a, a really nice run for 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 Marvel and for in, and for uh, Lucasfilm. And again, it, it, these books have been collected. Dark Horse did them. So you can definitely pick them up or you can go to eBay, as I as I mentioned. But just wanted to circle back and give you the full extent of why the irony between Lucasfilm's and, and Marvel is so is so interesting because Shooter not wanting to do it had to be wooed by being showed you know, a hush, hush, you know, 25 minute, you know, 25 minutes of the film to say, come on, give us this. That is how desirable comic book adaptations were back in the day. I, I don't know if Marvel did Krull There's a, or Dragon Slayer. Yeah, they did that at the same time. Again, Marvel was not really having all, they were not having the same level of success with Star Wars. And I will put a plug in for, you should go back. It's an early episode, either episodes, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, I think it's called License to Thrill. 
Uh, it's about how the Star Wars license saved Marvel, put them from the red all the way into the black, and that money went on to finance all this great talent. Simonson, John Byrne, Frank Miller, and give us a decade of some of the best comics ever. So there you go. Now we can consider the the, the bow officially wrapped on this comic book connection, comic book inspired Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of secret origin episode. And uh, check out those Stranko paintings. Get these John Byrne comics. Look at all the different in- instances. Definitely worth checking out anything if you haven't on Johnny Quest to see, uh, again, why George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were, were fans of Doug Wildley's in the first place. You guys know that at the end of every episode, we read your reviews, the, rev- the reviews that you guys are so generous and so careful and so kind to leave with us. And I am so, so touched every time that you guys uh, leave a, a review for us. Uh, the The deal is I read them at the end. I share the wonderful sentiments that you guys are, are, uh, are sharing with me because this really helps us out. I'm not going to, you know, mince words here, your reviews, your five stars, your recommendations are what this podcast is, is made on. And I have just been so floored by going all over the country, store signings, conventions, and, and, and hearing your guys' feedback. It is, it is now become one of the most common, uh, things that, that, that we all discuss when I am doing the, the signings and I'm so touched and, and I am, so glad that my kind of status as old man of comic books is helping maybe shine the light on some stuff that you guys maybe haven't been exposed to before. So anyway, today I'm going to read to you. This is from Citizen Spam. He signs it Citizen Spam. And it's brief. It's short. It's to the point. It's very kind. It's five stars. It's titled, This Podcast is a Gift. Citizen Spam, Spam S-P-A-M, writes, When I was a teenager in the 90s, I would have one opportunity every year to potentially hear from you or your colleagues when you spoke at San Diego Comic-Con. I would have to wait in a line for hours to hear your opinions for just a few minutes. This podcast is an amazing resource. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. This touches me. I can relate to this. I know exactly what you're talking about here, waiting in long lines uh, to hear some of my favorites growing up speak, give me any sort of glimpse into what's coming next or why they made the choices that they made. So, so citizen spam, you touched me. Um, I, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. If you guys want to follow citizen spam, write us a nice review, uh, put it on the platform. Apple is where so many of them are lodged. I will happily read them on this show. If you want to send me something through all the different other means, again, like the social media ones that I'm going to share with you right now, I, I've read from those routinely. So I am all over social media. Again, thank you, Citizen Spam. I'm all over social media. I am on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld, the full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. Blue check tells you it's really me. I love talking to you guys. I love backs and forths. I mean, already uh, the day is young here, but I've already talked to so many different people online. It's so fun. So many people through Twitter. Ditto Instagram. Uh, Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. I got to get the shorter version of my name there. At Rob Liefeld. I have a blue check. Again, tells you that it's really me. I read your DMs, your messages, your comments. I enjoy all of them. Thank you so much. I love getting to know you guys and sharing life together. This page, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld, has a dedicated page on Facebook. Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld is the page. Seek it out. Like it. Leave a comment. I'll find it. I'll respond to you. Thank you so much for all the support that you guys give us across all of these different um, social media platforms. We would not be here but for you and your support. Thank you again. This is 
the time of the show where I make certain that you know that I am wishing you nothing the best for your spiritual health, your emotional health, your mental health, and your physical health. And my recommendation is always going to be get on that couch, get on that beanbag, get in that comfy chair, read a comic, read a book, watch some cool shows, the streaming stuff that's on right now, a great movie, enjoy time with your kids, your wife, your family, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Um, just thank you so much for all the love you share and, and send my way. And I want to send it back to you. And I want to make sure that you're taking care of yourselves because what a crazy time that we are living in, right? So slow it down, take some time, kick your feet up and, uh, and, and enjoy, uh, the things that give you true pleasure in life. And, and, uh, I'm rooting for you always. I am always rooting for you. For you, do me a favor though. Circle back around. Find me here next time. I'm going to be waiting here because we most assuredly are going to talk again real soon. Thank <laughs> you.